Hi, Dr. Alistair. Welcome to Network Capital. Um, you don't need much of an introduction, but uh, it'll be wonderful to hear uh, the way you identify yourself, what do you do for a living, and what got you interested? Uh, I'm a professor. Right now, I'm a professor of public policy at University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is the the main campus, the so-called flagship campus of the University of Massachusetts. Uh, and I'm also director of the School of Public Policy at, at UMass Amherst too. Um, and um, uh, I've, I've had a, I'm originally, I'm Canadian, I'm a Canadian citizen. I, I started uh, my uh, scholarly career in Canada, started off in political science actually at a place called Queen's University. Uh, I did a law degree at the University of Toronto and then I did a master's degree and a PhD uh, in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and then worked in a variety of different places. I worked in Canada for 10 years at, and, uh, at Syracuse University, the Maxwell School of Public Affairs for eight years. I was uh, on the faculty there. Uh, I taught, I was a law professor in Boston for uh, eight years, and, uh, and I've also worked at the Truman School of Public Affairs in Missouri, and now, of course, I'm here. So I've been a around many different places, but always interested in public policy. But I think the one thing I, I probably distinguishes me a bit from other public policy professors is that I've also got this uh, background in law and political science as well. Yeah, yeah we're always fascinated by intersections, you know, law, public policy, technology. Um, what, uh, what, when did you know that you wanted to uh, transition from law to policy? And uh, what was early career? Well, I started off uh, in political science when I was an undergraduate, uh, and uh, I did uh, two years of political science, and I realized I'd been active. I was active in politics at the time, and I realized that political science was a little too abstract for me. I liked something a little more concrete, so I decided to try law, so I did a law degree, but then I realized, and that, that has proved to be very advantageous, but I realized that law in a sense is too far in the other direction. Sometimes it's very down in the details, you know, you're arguing about words or text. Uh, and that wasn't quite where I wanted to be either. And, uh, and actually, so I looked at uh, public administration or public policy, those are two closely related fields. And um, one of my law professors suggested that I apply to Harvard. And I should tell you, I'm the first person in my family to go to university. So uh, oh. The thought of going to Harvard would never have crossed my mind if he had um, not raised it. Um, so to to humor him, basically, I applied and uh, and I got in, and that has proved to be the, uh, where I like to be. I I really enjoy um, studying policy problems because they're uh, they're important. You're talking about improving the welfare of uh, ordinary people, and they're. Um, they're complex. They're like puzzles. You know, it's trying to figure out how you address a policy problem uh, is uh, very challenging, and, it, and you really have to bring in all kinds of knowledge. Uh, you have to think like an economist sometimes. You have to uh, think like a bureaucrat sometimes. How exactly are you going to make this policy work? You have to think like a lawyer sometimes. Uh, you know, uh, what in a liberal democracy like India? Uh, is, is acceptable. Um, and, uh, and sometimes you have to think like an ethicist, what's the, what's the fair thing to do? So um, they're, they're, they're important, complicated uh, uh, puzzles. Super interesting, super difficult uh, puzzles to solve. But it's great to know, I actually did not know you're the first person in your college, in your family to go to college. It must be such an incredible uh, delight to now teach thousands of students around the world. Uh, even this masterclass will go out to uh, many, many thousands of people. Um, and I'm sure they'll find it deep inspiration in what you just said. Um, policy issues, um, Dr. Alistair, tend to be tricky. Why should one pursue a master's or an advanced policy space? Uh, instead of actually going on the ground and talking to people and, you know, building a community and starting work. How did you see it? What do you observe 
or what do you remember from your student time and what do you observe among students today? Well, uh, the getting on the ground experience is good and, and many uh, graduate programs in public policy uh, value um, having some kind of experience in the field uh, when they're looking at applications. Um, I think that doing a policy degree gives you an advantage because it, Im it improves your skill in thinking through policy problems in a systematic way. It's giving you substantive knowledge about how to solve policy problems that draws ideally from many different disciplines. And it's also uh, cultivating the professional skills that you need to succeed in the, in the workplace. Uh, communication skills, writing skills, analytic skills, and so on. Um, and I should say too, you know, the third thing that um, uh, is advantageous is that it gets you uh, into a network. Uh, you 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 join a community. And um, you know, when I went to the Kennedy School, uh, you know, the curriculum was fine, but uh, one of the most exciting things was. Uh, being in a community of people who had a similar interest. And, and years later, I still keep in touch with that group. I should qualify. I do want to say that, um, you know, there's a, one thing about the public policy degree is the versatility of it. You can talk yeah. about going into public service directly into government, but you might end up working in a non-governmental organization uh, or you might even work in the private sector because many companies are either regulated by government or they interact heavily with government um, or they need to have a position on one policy question or another. Um, and so very often uh, private sector firms uh, find it advantageous to have somebody with a policy background as well. Uh, it's also a very nice complement to uh, specialized degrees. You know, if you've got a a more focused degree, perhaps in one of the professions, having a policy degree is, is a second degree is a nice compliment. I mean, I used to work at Microsoft and there was a team that looked at policy specifically and many of them tended to be lawyers or people who would uh, study policy stuff. But uh, that's not what you did after, right? Like you, you decided to get into academia. Uh, what was, uh, why did you do that? And did you always know that you wanted to be a professor? No, no, I stumbled from one thing to another. <laughs> you know, the, uh, I'm not one of the persons who uh, had sort of a long run uh, game plan. You know, the story I told you before is I started in political science and I realized, oh, that's not quite right. Move into law, that's not quite right. Move into public policy. Um, I enjoy being an academic. It's not for everybody, um, but uh, it, it gives you a certain degree of freedom to explore questions that you're interested in and to uh, write about things that you're interested in. The, as a career, academia has its own um, requirements and uh, uh, hurdles you have to jump, but uh, it, it has certain advantages too. It gives you a lot of flexibility. I would say one of the disadvantages is that sometimes you're not as engaged in uh, uh, on the ground reform. You're not, you're not in the action. You're not in the fight, as it were. So that's a that can be a bit of a a, a trade off. Yeah. Um, so you, like every interesting person on Network Capital, you also stumbled upon different insights, decided to become an academic. But let's start early on. So um, in your master's, it seems like the community was really important and the breadth. Yeah. When you started PhD, as we understand, it's fairly depth-based. How did you identify the problem, and uh, how did you, you know, defend it eventually? Uh, I'm sorry, I missed the, the middle part of what you were saying. Uh, at the, the, it cut out on the audio. Yeah, I was just saying that uh, your PhD question. What was it all about, and what were those years pursuing? It must well, be a different experience. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, my dissertation was the, I had a topic that I was going to pursue and I put it aside. Um, and, and this was actually, this is many years ago, the topic I was thinking about pursuing was the way in which international trade agreements affected national sovereignty. And, hmm. um, uh, and I didn't do that topic. Um, 
and that was a mistake. <laughs> so, because I that that proved to be the topic for the next twenty years or so. Um, I actually looked at a somewhat different topic, looking at administrative reform, what we would call today state the development of state capabilities, which is still interesting. Um, uh, the uh, but, but that's sort of the, the main area I got into. I, and then, you know, it, later on, I explored different areas. I've done a lot of work on right to information, for example, or freedom of information, as we would call it um, uh, in North America. I've actually done a lot of work on right to information in India, which is a fascinating case. Um, the, there's a, a fascinating case where it's not just about policy design, but also about implementation. How do you, how do you make the policy work on the ground? Yeah. Um, and uh, recently been doing a lot of thinking about uh, how we make uh, democracies work. How do we structure governments that are capable of delivering essential services like education and healthcare uh, and capable of responding to emergencies like a pandemic uh, yeah. while also respecting democratic norms like the right to participate in government, civil liberties and so on. Because I think that's one of, for me, one of the big challenges of the coming years. Yeah, we hosted a professor uh, from Yale who studies democracies as well, uh, Helen Londemore. Um, and uh, she had some pretty interesting ideas about open democracy. I wonder uh, what your ideas were about making democracies, what's your thesis? Because uh, I think a lot of countries could do with, with a refresher on what that entails. I think um, generally, I have for many years been, been an advocate of open government and uh, the extension of democratic principles. Um, the, uh, the other thing too is that we don't sometimes recognize that democratic governance is a relatively new phenomenon in the sense that it's really only been around for 60 or 70 years. You know, uh, the Republic of India is, what, 70 odd years old uh, now. Really, the uh, voting rights were not fully extended in the United States until the 1960s. Um, in other democracies, voting rights really weren't extended to the mid 20th century. So in the long run, the scheme of things, 60 or 70 years is really not that much. And we're yeah. still in the process of figuring out, okay, exactly how do we make democracy work? Um, and it's not straightforward. You have to figure out how you want to structure political competition, where you want to apply democratic principles rigorously or where you don't. Maybe there's some areas where you want to uh, leave uh, 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 responsibilities to the experts and basically say, okay, uh, you know, like we sometimes do with central banking, we say, okay, we're going to let the experts figure out what to do on that. But, um, and you wouldn't want to elect certain kinds of folks. So the big challenge is um, not just are we in favor of democracy, but how do we express it in institutions? And um, are there areas where we wouldn't want to apply democratic principles rigorously? That's the sort of that's one of the puzzles we have to figure out. And I should say um, that you know when you look around the world, um, India is the country where these questions just come to the fore quite dramatically, um, because you know there are tremendous questions about. Uh, building state capabilities in India that need to be addressed. As I was saying, health, ed health care, education, uh, public security, and so on. And of course, it's also the world's biggest and most vibrant democracy. So, and these questions about how much democracy do you want? How do you balance democracy and civil rights, civil liberties? Yeah. How much power do you give to the center versus the states? Uh, there's lots to talk about in the Indian case. Yeah, India is a fascinating case study. Do you get a lot of Indian students at uh, UMass? Uh, yes, we do get a lot of Indian students uh, at, at UMass. I couldn't give you the statistic, but we have a, a, a very significant population. This is a big campus. I believe we have between 30 and 40,000 students. And yeah. it's a quite diverse campus as well. What is your class like? What is what does a day in your life look like? Uh, how much of it is thinking about big 
thorny problems, how much of that is writing, how much of that is teaching, how much is doing masterclasses like this one? Well, that's a good question. So I'm an administrator, so I spend uh, probably about, um, the, as I think about it, the, the hours won't add up. I spend a considerable amount of time just doing work in, in, in planning for the school and thinking about the day-to-day -day running of the school. I also teach a course uh, right now I'm doing an introduction to public administration for undergraduate students here, but I've mm. also done a course on comparative public policy. Um, and, uh, and then maybe about 25% of my time is on, on research and writing and, um, and, and having conversations like this, conferences and so on. Yeah. The pandemic changed a lot, right? For universities, for public policy, uh, for families. So as an academic, uh, as, as well as somebody who thinks about these questions, what do you think is the role of the university in the post-pandemic world? And what did, what did you learn as an administrator in the past uh, year, year and a half? Well, the, uh, it has been a very challenging time. Um, it, and it sort of manifested in a couple of different ways. Obviously, we had the public health aspect. That is, how do we run our operations in a way that's safe? for everybody involved. Um, we uh, also had the technology aspect. How do we adapt to a new uh, environment? Um, and I think uh, we've learned a lot. And in the span, it was a very concentrated learning experience, but we've broken a lot of barriers in terms of how we think about doing our work. Um, there was also an economic aspect because uh, uh, a lot of institutions, public and private, uh, had to go through a pretty significant retrenchment, you know, austerity measures um, because of the pandemic. And, and like all public universities, we've gone through that too. That's a short-term phenomenon. That will start to reverse fairly quickly. Um, but I, I think one of the most interesting things is that we have um, really broken down, as I was saying, a lot of I'm not sure if resistance is the right word to use to the idea of, of using new technologies in education and doing what we're doing right now. Yeah. So in, in 2019, um, the idea of having a conversation like this for many, most professors would have been unorthodox and now it's standard, right? And everyone's got the drill. They've got the technology, not everyone, but many people have got the technology. They understand how to unmute themselves. They sort of got the routine. They, um, and uh, we've also learned how to use uh, 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 learning platforms, Moodle, Blackboard, and so on. So we've become much more versatile in how we do our work. And um, I think going forward, even when we start getting back on campus and we're cautiously optimistic that we'll be back on campus in the fall, um, that we will still use a lot of these technologies. So for example, um, even if I'm teaching a class in person, hmm. um, does every session have to be in person? Um, one of the things we've learned is that bringing a guest speaker into a class using this technology is very, very easy. Bringing a guest speaker onto campus used to be very difficult. Um, but if we're bringing a guest speaker in and we're doing it by Zoom, why do we need to gather in the classroom? Everyone could just stay at home that day and say we're going to connect. You wouldn't want to run an entire class that way, but doing something that way would be good. Another thing. Um, conferences, academic conferences um, have gone entirely online. And um, one of the things we've realized is that it um, breaks down uh, barriers to accessibility. People who couldn't travel to a conference can participate to, on a conference online. Yeah. We did uh, we did our um, graduation ceremony last year online by necessity, and we'll, ha we'll have to do it again online this summer, this spring by necessity. But one of the things we observed is that, um, you know, we had all of the students in a Zoom meeting doing our graduation ceremony, uh, but um, many uh, students were connecting from their homes with their extended families behind them in their living room. And these are people who never would have had the opportunity to participate in the ceremony before. So I think the future yeah. is going to look like a blend of old and new. Yeah, it sure, 
will be, which makes me wonder what will happen to the cost. I mean, you're an administrator in a prominent school um, that's doing policy. Does it bother you that uh, education is growing or has been growing in the past few years at eight times the cost of uh, you know the income perhaps? So what might, do you think COVID and the blended learning will change that? How should people looking to apply for policy schools uh, think of uh, this, this entire experience? What would it really be uh, something similar or would it be even better perhaps? So remind me uh, that uh, to, let's make sure we do cover this question about looking at schools and where to look um, um, because otherwise it'll slip my mind. But yeah. let's, uh, cover, the, let's cover the cost and the yeah. first. The, but the cost thing is this, this bothers me. This question bothers me a lot. Um, the question of, of how do we create opportunities for individuals who are interested in public policy to get uh, a quality education at a reasonable cost. And there should be opportunities, especially from what we've learned over the last year to deliver um, programs to individuals uh, in a more effective, cost-effective way. And I would very much like to explore that. Um, you know, I've got, had for many years, for example, an interest in uh, India. I visit India about once a year. Um, and, uh, and I know there's a lot of uh, young professionals in India who are interested in public policy. Coming to the United States to do a policy degree is a very expensive proposition. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, one of the things I am sort of tossing around is the question of how do we develop a, a more innovative ways of doing that. I will say one of the predicaments for American universities is uh, basically salary structures. Um, a lot of, a lot of uh, the costs of American public universities is basically tied up in payroll. Um, I see. Uh, faculty and staff salaries. And so um, the, the challenge is figuring out um, how for the schools in the short run, not the long run, is the question of how do you restructure operations in such a way that you're making the product more accessible and affordable, maintaining quality, and also basically covering your, your fixed costs. Yeah. I do feel that the cost structure will has been changing. For example, the support staff in many colleges or universities. I think for many months, uh, nobody was allowed and they were the first people in many places to, you know, to be let go or to be yeah. furloughed and so forth. Um, do you see the nature of employment change? Do you think adjunct faculty would become more popular? Do you think um, support staff would be outsourced? Would it be flexible? flexible working, because the goal is to cut costs to make education more accessible. Um, you need to start somewhere. I wonder where that somewhere might be. Well, the, you know, in the long run, when people are thinking about the, the tricky bit, I mean, you could imagine hiring adjuncts to teach online courses. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have quality control. You've got to think carefully about quality control, making sure you're you're delivering a high quality program. Um, you've also got to think about fairness to the adjuncts. Um, and there is an active debate in in the United States because the predicament is, you've got a generation of scholars who are tenured faculty, basically like the fellow you're talking to, um, mm. who is um, who are very well paid, who have job security. Um, you know, we're not going away anytime soon. And we have a work model where we teach sometimes and we research sometimes. So part of our job. And that's the, really, without research, there's no university. Right. And the normal model for an academic is, I don't want to say normal, but a, a common model is so-called 40-40-20, which is you do 40% teaching, 40% research. This is allocation of time, 20% mm. service or administration. So... Um, you know, the, the challenge is uh, thinking about how you s staff programs um, in such a way that you're treating workers fairly and you're also 
reserving, preserving the traditional function of universities in, in encouraging research and protecting the autonomy of researchers. You know, the other difficulty is if you went to a world of adjuncts on short-term contracts, not only would they not have time to do research, um, but precisely because they're on short-term contract, they'd be more vulnerable to political pressures on their, on no, their on any, research. Criticize anything. I think you may be aware of uh, uh, some recent uh, yes. education, <laughs> um, political um, interference that has been alluded to. And I think it's very important uh, to remind ourselves why universities exist. And these are important questions, cost, the purpose of university. Uh, is it teaching? Is it research? Is it combination? How do you be fair to everybody? And I think that's what makes uh, your job such an interesting job, right? You're literally uh, trying to address these questions for students, for the university, for your other colleagues in other places. What is... Uh, what is the most challenging part about doing your job or being in your position? And uh, how, how have you tried to figure that challenge out? The principal challenge, uh, and it's not peculiar to this particular institution, is uh, uh, working entrepreneurially in a, a, a bureaucracy. And I don't mean that in a pejorative yeah. sense, but you're talking about a very big organization that has lots of systems and policies um, and and so trying to figure out how to do things in a new way and creatively uh, while also kind of navigating all the rules and requirements that's the the uh, particular challenge and um, and as you know just to combine that with the, the previous point the, the thing as I said I'm that I am mainly thinking about is how do we make uh, public policy education more generally accessible Hmm. given those constraints. I think, uh, yeah, this is, uh, these trade-offs will define how the 21st century really look like. Look, one option is that, you know, the way network capital looks like, it's an unbundled education experience. People participate in different fellowships, public policy, product, investing, and they graduate with a community, the network. They learn right. from very interesting faculty, say yourself, uh, and your colleagues and other practitioners around the world. And then they get one-on-one -on -one mentorship. Initially, all of this was supposed to happen in a university. But then somewhere along the way, the university became, university in general, as an expensive, uh, slightly more bureaucratic than one would have hoped and out of touch with times. So we are observing the unbundling of the education where different organizations are doing different part of uh, all of it. What worries me, and I would love your thoughts on it, is that university is not just an educational experience. Right. It's also early a social experience. Uh, I'm sure your professor, your students come down, have a cup of coffee with you, or just hang out. That arguably would have gone down in 2020. So university, if it plays a deeper role, a larger role, how do we... Uh, how do we bring some of those benefits to those who perhaps don't want to go to university or perhaps can't afford it? Have you thought about that? So, yes. And, you know, one solution would be some kind of blended format. You know, so for example, could you imagine, and, and so I'm in the business of, at the moment of doing uh, graduate uh, public policy education, right? So can you imagine uh, a blended format where people are doing some components of the degree online uh, at a distance, but then they also gather together. Uh, perhaps they gather together for an intensive period of a few weeks. Um, perhaps they come to campus. Um, perhaps the campus comes to them. Um, mm. The uh, in, in the sense that, so you're trying to basically to uh, do some work remotely, but you're also trying to um, build because the human connection that people also want to get out of their degree. And uh, so you could imagine a scenario where they do a semester online and perhaps they come on campus for two or three weeks intensively. Yeah. And then they go back online, iterate that two or three times, maybe. Um, or maybe it's an instance in which you've got a central university that basically says, okay, we're going to uh, send instructors out to, uh, to uh, 
you know, one city or another and, and do some kind of intensive session yeah. there. So there's got to be creative ways of kind of blending the, the modalities. Yeah, I think it's a lot like uh, companies that have really got remote work, right, are the ones who figured out that short bursts of uh, intense interaction is great. And then we can go back to our own like hoods, do our work and perhaps meet again in a few months for a short burst and go back. But I think it's an interesting time to uh, be in a position as yours. How is the school like looking at it uh, in the coming years? Uh, are, you, are you hearing feedback from your students? Are they worried about their job prospects? What's the environment like in university these days? Um, I think... At the moment, it has been a challenge. It's been a challenging moment for, I think, every member of the university community, including students. Um, you know, there's been a high degree of stress. Um, the uh, people have been balancing many conflicting um, demands on their time. You know, they're shifting to online education but perhaps they've got family obligations as well. Perhaps they've got a member of their family who's become ill because of the pandemic. Uh, perhaps they've got someone in their family who's lost a job because of the pandemic. Yeah. So it's been a very intense period and, and very challenging. And one of, the, one of the things we've tried to do is to uh, accommodate that by making adjustments to schedule, by... Um, uh, you know, showing some flexibility by building opportunities for people to come together casually, obviously to the extent you can using Zoom. Um, uh, and so the, and one of the, and one of the, the realities is, and this is probably true in all spheres of human activity is when everyone's stressed, um, you know, there is a danger that small problems become uh, big problems. That kind of buffer or reserve that is normally there uh, isn't there. So, You've had, you have to sort of manage uh, carefully. Um, and, and I think, you know, people are uh, wondering what comes next. I would have to say, though, over the last month or so, um, now that the vaccination program is rolling out um, and uh, the economic recovery program that's been put in place here has been adopted by Congress, I think people are much more optimistic about where we're going to be six or seven months from now than they were back in, in January. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm expecting we'll be back in something like normal operating mode by uh, late August in terms of our own operations. And I have a hunch the economic activity will bounce back fairly quickly once we get through the vaccination period. Right, but that, that's key. Um, how, like, you know, you've uh, been thinking about democracy and other things. How did democracy thrive or perish in the pandemic? Do you have thoughts on that? Did you have thoughts on that? Um, well, there's a whole bundle of things going on, right? It's, uh, yeah. it, it, and it's hard to unpack. I'm actually just starting to write a book that's going to have to say something about the pandemic. And just before we got on, you know, one of the things um, I, I've got to do a presentation in a few weeks for which I am not prepared, but um, the book is basically looking at uh, four countries, India, China, the European Union, bear with me in calling that a kind of, it's oh, yeah. not really a country, but it's a polity I... and the United States and the, 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 the premise of the book is that these are basically super states they're incredibly large you know india is projected to have a population of 1.7 billion people by uh, 2050 it will be the most populous country in the world it, it'll be ahead of china by that point in terms of population and these are just extraordinary numbers um and the question is how you govern countries this big and uh how you govern them without resorting to authoritarian policies like china does um, but one of the interesting questions is, well, we just had a, an, a natural experiment, right? Where the same shock, the pandemic, hit four very different political systems, China, India, the European Union, and the US. Yeah. And an interesting question is, 
which one of those systems handled it most effectively and, and which didn't. Um, well, well, everyone wants uh, and so, and part of the question is, you know, did being a democracy hurt or help in, in a situation like that? Um, and this is one of, sorry, go ahead. The answer seems to be um, something, but uh, is it an obvious answer? Is it not an obvious answer? It's n not obvious. Um, yeah. You know, authoritarian authoritarianism proved to have well, it's got its, its pros and cons. You know, part of the difficulty with authoritarian rule is that you you don't get early notice about looming problems, which is what happened in China. Uh, but on the other hand, you have the capacity to crack down firmly when you 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 acknowledge the problem, which happened in China. Um, you know, part of it in, in the Indian case is interesting. You had a a lockdown, which was problematic in many ways. Um, Part of this is a question of what the, the division of responsibilities between uh, the center and, and the states. Uh, and, and that's, I think, a, an aspect in the Indian case. But, you know, the other difficulty is uh, that the challenge in a pandemic is um, having well-crafted policies, but also persuading the public to comply with those policies Right. And, and doing that while respecting civil liberties and political liberty, freedom, basically. That has proved I, to be a, a huge challenge in many places. Yeah, yeah. It has, and we're still figuring it out. Like, I think this pandemic, as historian Yuval Noharari says, pandemics accelerate history. And public policy, unfortunately, gets the rap of always playing catch up. So do you... Like, uh, do you do you have any advice for students looking at public policy as a career? Should do public policy professionals and academics always first observe and then form a theory, or uh, what's um, what's one thing they should be aware of when they look at uh, public policies and emergencies? Pandemic being a prime example. Well, um, the. The one preliminary I would make is that, you know, we're focused on the pandemic because we're living through it right now. But uh, in the U.S., for example, the last 20 years have been a succession of crises of one kind of another. There you had the 9-11 attacks and the, uh, the challenge of homeland security. Then you had the global financial crisis and the response to that. You've had um, um, increasing number of natural disasters and, and growing questions about what government should do in that. And then also this pandemic. And the common theme in all of those crises is the responsibility of government to provide security in one kind of way, whether it's health security, economic security, security against natural disasters, security against uh, terrorist attacks. And there are these growing expectations on government especially central government in the U.S., um, to be able to manage. So basically, we're looking at an expansion, more things being put on the shoulders of central government. And, and then the question of, can central government handle these responsibilities competently? Does it have the capacity to do it? So um, in a way, uh, that we've ratcheted up the expectations for government in, in this century. My own view on how you should think about governance is that uh, uh, it, it's in large part about improvisation. Um, it, you've, you're talking about policymakers who are uh, limited in their capacity to uh, understand the complex systems they're governing and limited in their capacity to uh, predict what will happen in the future. And, uh, and therefore, you can never be entirely sure whether you've got the right policy or what the policy will do. And um, so you are to some degree engaged in improvisation. You're, mm -hmm. you're devising a solution or a bundle of policies that you think will work. Um, 
and even the best crafted bundle of policies is eventually going to uh, collapse in, in the sense that the formula you had for governing at one point of time, uh, there's no permanent solution. It, it will inevitably be the case that you'll have to reinvent the way you govern. And this yeah. has happened in the Indian case. You've seen it you know, since the 1970s, two or three you know, substantial shifts and understandings about the best way to govern the country. Yeah. Um, which goes back to the point I was making earlier on that it's, it's about, it's, it's, it's like trying to solve a puzzle that is, whose structure is constantly changing as you're trying to solve it. So yeah. I don't know if the, you're familiar with Rubik's cubes, but yeah. I, I, I say. Hmm? I have one right in front of me. So imagine trying to solve a Rubik's cube where the colors on all the little boxes are changing as you're trying to solve it. That, that's governance. It's gonna be uh, <laughs> pretty challenging. But I think that, that's what makes, your, uh, makes everything that you do so interesting. Um, you write, you think about the deepest problems, challenging problems, you engage with students, you look at administrative issues. Uh, it sounds like a, a real fulfilling, uh, holistic job for the right person. The same job could be very difficult or uh, not right for another kind of person, but it seems like uh, you found home in a mixture of academia and writing and practice. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I should say, you know, just a word about if people are thinking about um, uh, applying for graduate programs. They are. Uh, um, many, many of our folks apply in hundreds, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one thing um, I was fortunate to go to um, uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard. It was a wonderful opportunity. Um, but the the uh, market f and, and there is a tendency sometimes um, to focus on the sort of big name uh, universities, the you know the familiar ones like Columbia, Harvard, and so on. Um, if if people are thinking about the U.S. market for public policy schools, mm -hmm. um, the the one thing to bear to bear in mind is that the market, in terms of possible schools, is quite deep. And there are some very good schools that would not ordinarily come to mind. Um, and uh, one thing that people could do if they're interested is look at, uh, there's something called the US News and US News Ranking of Graduate Programs. Yeah. Many of our community members do take a look at that. So, uh, and in fact, the, the rankings for the public affairs schools will be, the new rankings uh, will be coming out on March 30th uh, shortly. Um, the one caveat, and, and when you look at the list, you'll, you'll see many schools on the list that at, at near the top of the list that might not ordinarily come to mind. Um, mm. You know, so for example, the Maxwell School at Syracuse University um, is very highly regarded. I believe it for a long time was the number one ranked school in that list. But for international students might not, Syracuse University might not recognize, yeah. you know, come up, but it's an outstanding school. There are many good schools in the DC area as well. The one thing uh, to bear in mind about that ranking, however, is that unlike the rankings of some other professional schools, the public affairs ranking is purely reputational. That is to say, they basically mm. do a poll of people who run public affairs programs and ask them to rank the other public affairs programs. So it's a little you have to take the ranking with a grain of salt. It's, it's not by any means of science. And it also suffers from a serious lag effect. So for example, we've added 10 faculty in the last uh, year or so at our school, um, but word about that will have to trickle out. So that won't show up on our rankings for three or four years. So, um, but having said that, um, looking at that list does give you a broader sense of options. The other thing that folks might wanna bear in mind is the critical difference in the American context between public and private universities, just in terms of pricing and affordability. Yeah. And I think that's something that many times people don't even know. They think that uh, a public university is the same as private or East Coast is the same as the West Coast. Exactly, so yeah. Know what kind of career opportunities open up, 
where are you a culturally a good fit where would you you know find uh, more many intangible factors that are that are working in your uh, uh, flavor and uh, you know one thing that um, i wanted your opinion on uh, is that international students coming to study policy um there was a time where many of them found jobs at the un world bank so on and so forth that has reduced a bit for international students across all schools and uh, that that uh, that is something which is slightly unfortunate because the whole premise of going to a different country to study is to be able to work there also for some time um do you think this remote or distributed work era would be helpful for policy professionals and students because geography will become less of, of a factor um and i should say by the way you know uh, i was also basically an international student at a us program and and granted from canada but i i sympathize with the predicament because you know if you're interested in pursuing opportunities in the country it can be a bit um challenging yeah and I, you know and and on that note you know one of the things when you're thinking about a program you you do want to think about pricing and the public private distinction matters there uh location matters and you also want to look at the school and because pub, public affairs programs have many different emphases you know so for yeah. example Carnegie Carnegie Mellon's very good on tech and public policy um uh, other schools uh have a more of an emphasis on social justice or different flavors as it were um the 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 question of figuring out how to let, you know seek opportunities domestically is um is challenging you if you you know you um having some time after you complete your degree to kind of look around uh is important if you're if you do a graduate degree in public affairs you do get um and I'm not an expert on the visa status but an opportunity after the 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 optional practical training exactly OP, yeah. opt yeah um the the other thing i sort of tell folks and this actually goes for um anybody uh domestic or international is that when you start from the moment you start your degree start thinking about what kind of story you want to tell employers when you're done your degree um yeah think about who you'd like to get at and 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 then craft your educational experience to the extent you can to put together a portfolio and you know sometimes people think okay that means that you know if i get in a degree program i should do track x or certificate x and i don't quite mean it that way um the you can you want to be able to talk to a prospective employer when you're done and say you know i have a real interest in topic x and for example whenever i could i wrote a research paper on topic x hmm. uh or i chose elective courses that were on topic x so it's not yeah. just sort of demonstrating that you've done a certificate or a track it's like demonstrating that you know i've actually been thinking about this particular problem mm-hmm. the other thing you can do um is uh every time you have an opportunity to write a research paper in your graduate program um you are presented with an opportunity to basically go knock on doors metaphorically speaking and mm-hmm. introduce yourself to people that it would be uh you know useful to know in the long run yeah. um n- nobody well people rarely um turn down an inquiry from a student who asks could i have 20 minutes of your time to ask you a couple questions about a research paper i'm writing and and so every research paper becomes an opportunity basically to make connections with the community that you're interested in engaging with uh, and then later on you know when you get your paper done you can send the person your paper and say thanks for the opportunity to talk I've just you know here's the paper i was working on just so you know so that's part of building a portfolio but it's also about using the elements of the educational experience to build the network you know, to knock on the doors of the people you'd like to meet that is such a fantastic piece of advice we often uh, talk about this concept luck surface area which is a combination of doing great work in this case is writing a great research paper and telling lots of people so i wrote a book i think uh, we briefly may have talked about it earlier 
uh, the seductive illusion of hard work. So one chapter in that book um, is focused on luck surface. You should uh, have it in your library. Or perhaps uh, I'll have it. Uh, you know, Amazon has it in. Yes, Boston, no, I've so. already I've already looked it up on and or ordered it on Amazon. So, uh, yeah. So you'll enjoy. There are many students who will and young professionals who will listen to this concept. It's such a practical and tangible and easy way for people to forge a real connection uh, based on a common intellectual inquiry. Um, I I just want to conclude today's session by asking you about how you learn and how you rethink. So as a busy person who has to you know, manage multiple portfolios and multiple uh, priorities, when do you learn new things? And uh, what's the process of uh, uh, rethinking look like for you? Uh, so how do I learn new things? Um, uh, uh, the... I read a lot. I mean, as you can see from over my shoulder, and uh, let me just adjust the camera over there. Uh, more books uh, over there. That incidentally is my India bookshelf. Uh, <laughs> um, I have, uh, so uh, what I do is um, uh, when I write books, I'm just, this book I'm doing will be my ninth book. Um, the, I, I basically start off with some problem or puzzle that I think is interesting, and then I spend a lot of time um, reading. So uh, that's my India pile. My China pile is back over there. My American book is sex piles over there. The EU is sitting up here. And I, I basically spend a couple of hours, uh, an hour or so every morning just reading a book. Uh, so I'm, I go through a book at the moment. I'm reading a very interesting book at the moment called... Um, the Dictator's Dilemma, which is about governance in, in China. Um, and then I'll write up notes after I read the book. And, um, and then at a certain point, I try to find some, put aside some time to do a little bit of writing every day. And I think actually that's advice that's on your, uh, on the Network Capital website as well. Yeah, well, we can't wait to have you back with us uh soon we also have a summer school alistair coming up where we have uh, teenagers coming to learn oh, so wonderful. lots to look forward to and we should also do the graduate session soon excellent good well you're doing wonderful work so congratulations and and keep it up well our work lets us uh, make new friends uh, people like you so alistair i see this as the beginning of uh, a long-term partnership catch you very soon and uh, thank you so much for your time my pleasure. Have a great evening. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Take care.